Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and the sermon title is, The Writing is Still on the Wall. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Let's get into the word, you guys. This is, uh, isn't Daniel awesome? Just the, even just the story after every narrative is just unique in and of itself. And here we now have a new king, a new era, a new time, and even just what a weird thing, right? What an interesting thing um, to just even read that account. But we're going to dig into that. This is nearing the end of the, the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon is coming to its end. And we've seen over and over again in this account of Daniel that God rules sovereignly over the kings of the earth. And so each king so far that we've seen, well, one being Nebuchadnezzar, now here Belshazzar, and then we'll see another one in chapter 6. It's like we're going through these rulers and kings, and we are going to see consistently that God is sovereign over each one, over all the kings of the earth, both then and now. And in chapter 5, we're introduced to this new ruler in Babylon. His name is Belshazzar. And so the text tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was his quote-unquote father. I want to just draw attention to this just to lay out the context of the situation. It said in our text a couple times, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, speaking of Belshazzar. But we know based on history, and there are extra biblical texts, just so you know, that speak of history even this far back, Five, six, seven hundred years BC that speak of these kings and these rulers and these kingdoms. And we know from other texts outside of Scripture, even, that the most likely situation is that this is not referring to Nebuchadnezzar as his biological father, but simply his lineage, but in fact that there was another king that was in place. King, there was another king, and we'll get to that. But it was not just Belshazzar. We know Nebuchadnezzar is, he's out of the picture now. He, he could have been a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and we know Scripture often speaks that way even of lineage, even when we think of Christ, Christ being the son of David, right? So we, we know the Scripture speaks that way. But none of that really affects the meaning of the text. And so we can go through this with confidence, even though someone might say, well, this just said he's his father, and that's, he's not really his father. It doesn't change or affect the meaning of the text at all. But historians do know that Belshazzar was not the actual king here. He was really more of the de facto king. And all of this does, it does have an effect on our understanding of the text. So this is not just useless information. But he was more of the de facto king. Um, What we do know is that a guy named uh, Nabonidus was actual first in command. And that's a historical record. A ruler in Babylon, King Nabonidus, was actual king in place. And Belshazzar was second in command. The people loved him, liked him, followed his command, and he was more of the de facto king. And if you feel like going into some of that history and figuring some of that stuff, stuff out, that would, be, that would be an extracurricular activity for you. That'd be fine. Extra credit. So, but notice, and, and this sort of plays out in the text, we notice that Belshazzar offers the one who can interpret the dream, he offers him which position in the kingdom? Third. Why? 
And it makes sense with history that Nabonidus would be number one, Belshazzar is number two, so he only had the third position to offer. That would have been the next highest power that he could offer, that one who could interpret the dream. So that sort of kind of comes together and makes sense with some of the history as well. Something we could not know from reading this text alone that you also have to look to some other extra-biblical historical record is that on the outside of the kingdom of Babylon right now as we speak in this chapter is the armies of the Medes and the Persians. And they are about to take over Babylon. The time of Babylon is coming to an end and we actually get to the end of this chapter and we see something that shows us well, we're given one little phrase. It says that Belshazzar was killed. And so you can sort of, in your imagination, kind of put the pieces together that as chapter 5 is beginning to take place and we see this scene of the writing on the wall and the drunkenness and the revelry, well, outside the doorsteps is an enemy that is going to overtake and overthrow Babylon. The Medes and the Persians... So we can't see that in the text, but it was predicted by God in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which also affects us kind of seeing the, the whole, the totality of Scripture coming together that God had predicted even in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would not last forever, but an inferior kingdom would come and take place of that head of gold, and it would be the, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And so what God says will come to pass does come to pass. We can count on that every time. But again, notice, just so you can see with your eyes, verse 30 of this chapter, and, and next week we will get to that, and John will be preaching on that section. But verse 30 of this chapter goes on to say that that very night the king was killed, and it wasn't of natural causes, it was by the invasion of those invading armies. But what that looked like, what that would have been like, who knows? We're just told that night, that very night, he was killed. Now, all of this is significant because, look at verse 1. When you know that little bit of a backstory and what's going on outside of the kingdom walls, kingdom walls which, by the way, were thought to have been unconquerable. By modern-day measures, I, I don't know what would compare to it, but the walls surrounding Babylon, several hundred feet I was going to say several hundred feet thick, but no, at least 20 or 30 feet thick, multiple walls, multiple layers, multiple layers, impenetrable. And yet, all of this is going on outside the walls, and look at verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. This is what the king of that Babylon is doing. A great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. I want to draw your attention to this thought that this is exactly how the world lives in light of the reality of God. This is exactly how the enemies of God live in light of the reality of God's existence. The king throws an extravagant party, which is not all that uncommon for pagan kings of that day, but what is uncommon is that the king would be present with his subjects during that party. We have other records of kings in these types of ancient Babylon with kings throwing parties, but they would be in their private quarters. And in this case, he's coming out before all of them and they're, they're drinking together and he's on display and they're all drinking together and they're partying together. 
So he's drinking wine in abundance, and he invites a thousand of his lords, which could have been a, a literal number or just saying a lot of them, to come and drink in front of them. And if that wasn't enough, after tasting the wine and being filled with the glory of his own majesty, he takes it a step further. And look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of the gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them as well. This taking it a step further, now he's invited his harem. He calls his harem in to join him and then remembers how years ago Nebuchadnezzar in his great conquest over Judah had taken the temple artifacts out of the temple and brought them into the temple of their gods. So this is taking us back to the beginning of our time with Nebuchadnezzar and that early years of him bringing the boys from Judah, capturing them, and then also making a statement that he is higher and better than the God of Israel, and capturing those, not only those people, but bringing the artifacts into the temple of their gods. And this was to attempt to show power over the God of Israel. So he asks that the artifacts be brought in to the party and that the vessels be filled with wine and that they drink their fill from those vessels in direct defiance to God and his holiness. And they praise the gods of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Look at the rest of this text with me. It says, Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. You know what this is called, church? This is called profanity. They are profaning. This is the truest sense of what it means to profane something. I know when we think of profanity, we think of profane things. We think of words that aren't uh, wholesome, speaking profanities. But uh, in, the, in, the, in a very serious biblical sense, this is what's happening here, to profane the good things of God. To profane something is to take something that is good and beautiful and intended for good and use it for something far below its intended purpose so that you devalue that thing in the way you use it. I'm sure you can think of several examples of what that might be in your life and in certain scenarios. When Callie, when my wife, makes something amazing for dinner, Hours and hours of preparation and careful ingredients get put into it to bring the right flavor to the family and bless us. And then one of us takes ketchup <laughs> or barbecue sauce and we squirt it all over that amazingly cooked meal. We have profaned <laughs> that food. Or for you black coffee drinkers... And you appreciate that natural goodness of the coffee bean brewed to perfection and roasted. When you see that cream and sugar next to you go into the coffee, you believe it has been profaned. It has been brought lower than its intended use. They have ruined it. But there are awfully serious examples too. Those are just to kind of get us thinking, of course. 
When a person who is made in the image of God with beauty and dignity from God takes their body or their life and uses it for things it was never intended to be used for, that person degrades and profanes the Lord's creation. There are hundreds of examples, so many examples, and we can look all around the world and we can see where there's profanity in that sense, profaning the things of God, devaluing, taking what God has made, what is intended for worshiping and giving glory to God, and it has been made lower by the way it is used. All of Babylon by this time has heard of those dreams that were interpreted by Daniel And the decrees issued by the previous kings that God is the most high and should be worshipped. All of Babylon has heard this. There have been decrees to even make it a law that you would worship the God of Daniel. Babylon's not ignorant of who this most high God is. But now Belshazzar is king and he denies the truth of those decrees. And he denies the truth of what God has spoken that Babylon will be brought low and not be the long reigning reigning empire that they believe it will be. So he rises up in sinful drunkenness and no doubt with the inclusion of his concubines and wives, most likely orgies, absolute profaning those artifacts that God had gave to Israel to show his holiness to Israel. This is profanity, and it is intentional. Get those vessels, bring them to the party, let's fill them with wine, and let's get drunk from those vessels that are the God, they belong to the God of Israel and to Israel who, whose God gave it to them. You know, there are other times where kingdoms have armies at their doorstep, and they call for what? A fast. They call for a fast, impending doom, armies around you. But Belshazzar doesn't call for a fast, he calls for a feast. That's a state of his heart. The sinner who is set on his or his or her ways, reveling in their sin, enjoying their pleasures, calling others into that pleasure, into that sin, and profaning the good things of God are guilty of the sin of Belshazzar. Belshazzar leads this party, and it says, and we can picture it, he toasts, a toast to each of those gods. A toast to the false gods, one after the next, as he leads them into blasphemous worship. It says he praised as he lifted those vessels filled with wine, praising the gods of wood, stone, and precious metals. Matthew Henry says this, about this text. Drunken worshipers who are not men but beasts are the most proper for the service of dunghill deities that are not gods but devils. They drank wine and praised their idol gods as if they had been the founders of their feast and the givers of all good things to them. And you can just get the sense and the feeling of what that room would have been like, the the darkness, the evil. And if you're a follower of Christ, then you should feel that. You should feel that way when something that is intended for good, something that is intended to point us to God, something that is holy, and we see it profaned. Those who will never heed the warnings of men will one day, though, sooner or later, see the reality of God and be forced to serious consideration of Him. Maybe not forced to salvation. I would never con- we would never say anyone can be forced to salvation, but there will be a day 
where someone will be forced to serious consideration of the God who is holy. And so our, my call, my recommendation, <laughs> strong recommendation would be to take him very seriously today and consider him. Consider your life and consider who you are and what you're doing and how you're using your life and how you're using what God has given you. But this is what happens with Belshazzar. He's not taking any of this seriously. There's war outside of his doorsteps. There's impending doom. Babylon will be conquered, and he's drowning it out. He's not serious about God. But he is about to be forced to consider God, isn't he? Verse 5, Immediately the fingers of a human man appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Wow. He saw the hand, a human hand, appear. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking of a giant human hand. I don't know why, <laughs> but I don't, maybe that's where your mind goes, like fee-fi-fo-fum kind of a thing, like the big giant, but no, it's probably not that. But just, it just says a human hand, even freakier, <laughs> right? Just shows up and begins to write on the plaster of the wall. Now, it says that the king saw it. Some commentators say they think this was just for the king and nobody else saw it. But later we see that there's reference, obviously, to him saying, hey, can you guys come and figure this out? So I think that the king saw it, probably noticed it first. But I don't think it was just, just seen by the king. But the point being... His sin was interrupted. His lack of seriousness, his not taking God serious or considering the holiness of God was interrupted by who? By God. And I think God has interest in doing that today and he wants to interrupt. He will interrupt at times and in his way and in his timing. At the right time, he will interrupt sin. You as believers in Christ can say, I'm so glad of that day when God interrupted my life of sin and ignoring him. That's what we want. May God interrupt many more pagan rulers in our world just like this. May God interrupt many more pagan rulers like this. And we need that to take place. May God interrupt blasphemous and satanic rituals. We all know the world is evil and what abounds. And the absolute desecrating of the holy things of God, the people of God, God's, God's creation made in his image. And what certain religions and groups and sects are doing and it is filthy, it is corrupt, it is horrific. But God here with this king who was not taking God seriously at all is suddenly interrupted by a handwriting on the wall. May God interrupt our sinful hearts when we choose to profane what God has given to us and to use it for our own gain and our own glory. I want to see God interrupt. I need God to interrupt me when I'm in sin. I need God to interrupt my unholy thoughts when I think them. I want that. I pray God does that. And as I grow in Christ, that it becomes quicker. And that when he does, I surrender to him. I bow to him. God, you're, you're right. 
And so wherever you are in that, whatever thing or sin or whatever it is that needs to be interrupted, have that heart. God, interrupt me. Even if it takes a hand writing on the wall. I hope you've not seen anything like that for your own sake (laughs) and your sanity. But this is what happened here. You know, we get that saying. Isn't that interesting? Nobody knows that. The writing's on the wall. Listen, you have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) If people who used that saying realized where it came from, the writing's on the wall. Yeah, God did the writing. God's trying to speak to you. The miracle takes place in the great room, this massive room. You can picture it, the banquet hall where the party is proceeding. And what is very clear is that God is able to terrify the most terrible person. Isn't that interesting? This ruler of Babylon, he's, ter- he's terrible. He's wicked. And God terrifies him just by writing something on a wall. Interrupts his revelry. Belshazzar may have been able to drown out the noise of Cyrus's army, which, by the way, that was King Cyrus and his army, the Medes and the Purge, the Persians. The next one that we see in chapter 6, that's the army that takes over. So Cyrus and his army is outside, and he may be able to drown out those noises, but he could not ignore this hand. (laughs) He can't ignore the hand that wrote those words on the plaster of the wall. This was personally written to the king. He watched the hand. He saw the hand write the words. And notice the placement of the warning. The scripture says it was opposite the lampstand. It's just interesting, these little details. That's important. Opposite the lampstand. The light shone just so he could see it. God placed it right there. Perfectly placed for him to see, potentially for all to see, lit up by the light of the lampstand. You know, this is potentially even part of their profanity because could have even been that some of the artifacts brought from Jerusalem was the lampstand. God's holy lampstand that stood opposite of the showbread. And there it is, potentially there as a part of their party and making fun of the God of Israel. And what it does is it lights up those words. And it lights up that hand. I don't know if he's as much afraid of what is written yet because he doesn't yet know the interpretation of it, but he's afraid because as he sees this hand, he knows that it's the hand of God and his guilty conscience afflicts him. Isn't that interesting? He's so caught up and we see this party is going on and it seems to have no way to be interrupted. And then all of a sudden, with writing that he doesn't even understand yet, he's guilty. He knows something's wrong. Something's wrong with his his life, his heart. And the conscience is an incredible thing. His conscience afflicts him. I thought it would be good to just talk about the conscience for a moment. It's worth bringing up. It's a gift from God, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2. Look at at Romans 2 verse 13. Romans 2 13. It will be on the screen too. Paul says to the Romans, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the conscience is that agent of God. It's a gift from God. You have a conscience. It is from God. Explain that one, atheist. The conscience is a gift from God, which every person has, that either accuses or excuses the sin in their lives. Now, whether you accuse that sin or excuse that sin, either way, you prove that there is a law from God written in your heart. That's what's being proved. You're proving that there's something written there because you're trying to excuse it or you're accusing it. You're saying, I'm going to repent of that sin, or you're saying, no, I'm okay with that sin. But either way, guess what? You know it's a sin. So you know that God is speaking to you. The writing is on the wall. Your conscience is being afflicted. God speaks to people through conscience. I think that's, in one sense, what's happening even here in our context. Everyone will one day give an account to that law. Every, one day, every human will give an account. Belshazzar is struck to the core He's interrupted in his sin, and the whole place is brought into confusion. So from partying to deep confusion and terror as the king frantically begins to seek the interpretation of that. Let's continue on. Look at verse 7. Read verses 7 through 9. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't put Humpty back together again. I'm just kidding. I always think that when I get to that part for some reason. (laughs) Sorry. Then all the king's wise men came in and they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So I just picture him. He yells for help. It says he cries out. He calls out. He yells, and then offers this great prosperity to anyone who can give the meaning of the writing, just like the first two times with Nebuchadnezzar. So he he looks at, so this is even ignored. Maybe he doesn't know much about this. He hasn't studied it. What the, you know, his own history and what Nebuchadnezzar has tried, but just like with those previous tries with the first king, the world has nothing to offer someone who is seeking to be right with God. The world has nothing to offer. You can't, you can't figure out what God is trying to say by looking at the world. You can't, the world can't help. There's no wisdom on earth that can interrupt the problem of sin or interpret, excuse me, the problem of sin and how to deal with it. The the world can't figure that out. So he's troubled and he's terrified and he wants to figure out what is this saying and there's no wisdom that's going to come from these people. He needs the voice of God. He needs God. He needs a man of God. And there's no astrologer on earth who can figure out the meaning of anyone's life. Maybe you've been in that. Maybe that's been somewhere in your past where you've read horoscopes and you're looking for some other wisdom out there or some stars or whatever. It can't give you the meaning of life. 
Belshazzar is at a crossroads. What's going on? What's happening here? He calls for all of these magicians and astrologers, and they can do nothing. The things of the Lord are understood by the Spirit, Scripture says. And one must seek the Spirit of the living God for the meaning of life, and more importantly, how a sinner can be saved. How does that guilty conscience become clean? And that only, we only get that through the truth of God written in his word. So he sees that none of his resources can buy the interpretation for him, and he becomes even more terrified, the fact that no one can help him. And that's also an interesting parallel, because people can be so troubled about the problems around them, grasping for help in all kinds of directions, terrified even at the, res- the things that are going on in the world, absolutely horrified by the surroundings, distracting themselves with sin and drunkenness and temporary pleasure, and yet God's word has been given to us so that we might know the truth and be free. So while everyone's distracted and distracting themselves and looking for help, God's word is that help. God's word, God's truth reveals to us what is needed for our lives. But... One person, at least, other than Daniel, has a little bit of wisdom. So we're introduced to another character in verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. This queen, more literally, would be considered queen mother, not the wife of Belshazzar. Potentially, it could be the wife of the king Nabonidus, but we don't really exactly know who this was. But she hears about the matter and she comes into the banquet hall. This is, we know not Belshazzar's, Belshazzar's wife because already his wives and concubines were in the room, and then here comes the queen. We know that he had already invited his harem. And then the queen comes in. The text has already told us that. But she knew the history of those first two dreams. She knew something about what Daniel had done in the testimony of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. She she recalls this back to this Jewish boy who was brought into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. This Daniel that had been used by God. Don't you love that? Just There's Daniel. He's not even trying to push his way in. He's not there amongst the Chaldeans and the astrologers. He's not there at the party. He's not called in with the enchanters when all the great interpreters are called in, even though he was previously elevated above them. So wherever he is, potentially in his 80s and 90s is what most people believe. So now Daniel's an old man, just living in the city, serving God. Not really, who knows where he is, what he's doing. We know he's serving. We know he's a man of prayer from chapters we'll see later. But she says, 
There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. There's a man in your kingdom. She doesn't know the, the, the full truth, but she knows what she's heard and what she's seen and what Daniel has faithfully testified to over the years. And now he will be called, he's going to be called upon. So she calls him Daniel. Do you notice that? She doesn't refer to him by his Babylonian name, which is, I think, also amazing. So Daniel, after being a young boy and given this Babylonian name, you know he's worked to continue his testimony that he is a, a child of God, that God has given him a name, and that he's not going to bow to the king, beginning with his, remember, the, his dedication to not take of the king's delicacies, but to be a man of God. She calls him Daniel, his Jewish name, which he no doubt continued to call himself. But I want you to just pay attention to these things that are mentioned about Daniel. This is what was mentioned by the queen. It's said of him that he's a man of wisdom. And she says, like the wisdom of the gods. Her best parallel that she can think of is that he can speak like the pantheon of gods that Babylon worshipped. Some sort of power that no one else could speak with. Wisdom. He had wisdom. She said he had light and understanding. Light and understanding were found in him. Also an excellent spirit. Knowledge. Specifically able to explain mysteries and solve problems. So the point is, there's a man in the kingdom that is gifted by God to do for you what you really need done right now. God had gifted him, and Daniel knew God. What she was saying, perhaps without knowing that she's saying it, is this Daniel, he has a relationship with the God of heaven. He has a relationship with the God of the universe. He knew God. He was the one in the kingdom that could be pointed to. Church, to know God, for you to know God through Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him is absolutely miraculous. To know him and be used by him. To even be called upon in any way for someone to say, I think he knows God. She knows God. He has a relationship with God. There's wisdom found in him or her. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. There isn't a difficulty on earth that the reality or that reality cannot comfort. That I know God. That you know God is a reality. If you trust Christ and you know God through Jesus, that reality can comfort any situation that you're in. I think we may underplay that truth to know God and how miraculous that is. To be like Christ, to be a witness for Christ in this world and have the spirit of the living God dwelling within us, because of faith in Jesus, so that while the world is reeling and shaking and terrified, we have been granted peace, and we are that one people, that one person in your workplace or in your community that is at peace with God. 
She calls on Daniel. Daniel has the Spirit of God in him. We need to bring Daniel. Don't you want to be that kind of testimony? That kind of witness? Think about it. Let it challenge you. We've been granted peace by his blood. A peace that passes human understanding. The phrase, this is where we're going to focus for the last few minutes. Just this one phrase that it says, able to explain riddles and solve problems. And I, I, this stood out to me as I'm just kind of looking at below the surface what these words mean. The word literally means he has the ability to loosen knots. Daniel can untie knots. Not literal knots, but he solves problems. Things that are confusing, things that are bound up and unable to be understood by the world, Daniel could understand them. He could untie knots. And I could not help but think that that's exactly what the gospel does for each and every one of us in our world, in our context right now. You, where everyone else is confused and broken and distracted and terrified, you can untie that knot for them. It's really tight and impossible without the Holy Spirit. But we have been given by God now the ability to know the mystery. That's what the gospel does. We can know why the world the way it is, why the world is the way it is, why people are evil. We know why. Where one might not even be able to answer why are people evil seems like a pretty straightforward question, but most people actually don't know why. You know why, because of the gospel. Why are people evil? This understanding of sin and the original sin and the rebellion against God. Why is there evil in the world? Why a holy God would love his enemies and even save them by dying for them. That's a mystery that we've been given, that we now know. That we can know his goodness and we can have his peace and the comfort of forgiveness in eternity with his love because Jesus suffered for us and rose from the dead. That knowledge alone is enough for you to untie knots for people. To loosen some very confusing things and to bring the only message that can bring eternal life and peace. The knots have been loosened for us. Praise God. For you and me, where we were once confused, where we once had no idea what our purpose was and why we're here and what we're doing. When we were once terrified, you don't have to be terrified anymore. But there are many out there who are still in their sin and revelry. There are people who are literally now ignoring the impending doom outside the gates and we need to warn them. Quite literally, the writing is on the wall. Belshazzar did not know what the writing meant. Daniel did. I, I believe that there's a parallel to that and that we do. We also know what that writing means. And the scriptures give us a, a whole Bible full of writing that can only be known through the Spirit of God. And you can know that. You have that. If you're a believer in Christ, there is no mystery that needs to be hidden from you in this book. So all of the confusion, all of the sin, all the paganism, all the false religion and the, the worship that is profane, you 
And again, I'm not saying the purpose of this text is just to be a Daniel. But Daniel is teaching us something here. God is teaching us something about the testimony of one man in the city who was being called upon because the Spirit of God was in him. And if that's you and me, there's no difference in the way we can bring light and interpretation to the confusion and chaos that is in people's lives right now. Does that make sense? You hearing that? That writing is on the wall and they cannot understand it. We must tell them. We must tell them. The Spirit must open their eyes and reveal it to them. And that's what we pray. God, open their eyes and bring me into that situation. Call on me like Daniel was called on. Call on me. I want to be in that situation. I want to go where I can help bring light and interpret and untie the knots for people by the power of your Holy Spirit. Like Daniel, be ready to be called upon when you're needed. I, I, I love that the next thing you know, Daniel was brought in before the king. There he is again in his 90s, 80s, 90s. He's an old man and he's still being called upon. I think there are people in this room maybe who have never, maybe never been called upon for your faith in Christ. Never been called upon for godly wisdom. Because though you may be a Christian, you don't know his word. And so you won't be called upon. And if you are called upon, you won't be ready. So just take heed to that too. Be someone who serves him, loves him, loves his word. Get You know God and God knows you. And you're ready to be called upon when you're needed. Because if you're in Christ, you too have literally the spirit of excellence in you and you have what the lost in our world need in order to see and that is the gospel of Christ that Christ is the true king that he is the true king that he, his reign is forever and his kingdom is for all who trust in him Belshazzar's kingdom is coming to an end and he will not take heed he doesn't end like Nebuchadnezzar does I don't believe. He is killed that very night, and we'll get to that later in subsequent sermons. But be ready. Be ready to be called upon, church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for untying the knots for us. And there were so many, so, so many We did not know our purpose. We did not know who created us, why we are here. We did not know that what could satisfy us was not anything in this world. We didn't know that true fulfillment came from a relationship with a holy God and not with filling our lives with pleasures of this world. We didn't know that. We were confused. We were broken. We were lost. I thank you even for this testimony, God, letting us read this and know, even from this account of this wicked king, ignoring the, the impending destruction of his own kingdom and how he reveled in his sin and he profaned the things of God 
I pray that if there's sins today that we need to repent of and break free from, just like Nebuchadnezzar did, to break off those sins, that we would do that. That we would turn, that we would not live lives of profanity, using our bodies and our lives and the things that you've given us for unholy things. Oh God, we... We don't want to see image bearers profaned. Thank you that you love us, God. Thank you that you love us so deeply and dearly. And you proved it. Thank you that that greatest knot was untied. That How do we know God? How can we be reconciled to God? How can we be right with God? And we now know that it is only through Jesus It's only through his sacrifice, his substituting himself for us in our place, receiving the judgment of God for us, rising from the dead, conquering sin for us, conquering even death itself. Thank you, God, that we know that. Give us the boldness to be ready to be called upon. Give us the awareness, God, to study, to be prepared even in this sense, to be like Daniel in that way, God, that if there are people around us in our community, in our context, in our work, in our homes, God, use us. Use us to bring light to what is so mysterious and so terrifying to so many people that people don't need to be terrified. They can rest. They can rest under the salvation of Jesus Christ. I pray if there's anyone in here that needs to know that truth, God, that they are terrified of the world around them. They don't know where to go, what to do. You'd give them the peace of God as they surrender and put faith in Jesus Christ today and repent of sin and trust you that your sacrifice was good, it was perfect, it was pure, it was everything we needed. Thank you. Thank you, God. Continue to equip us, God. Send us out. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.